Starting stream. It is. We're there alive. it is. We're alive. It's live. Lament. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. Endure to this day. For all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Boundless. All right. All right, we've got a few prayer requests, and we've got a thank you, uh, Steve, Steve Blazing. He's the one that had the heart surgery up in Cleveland. Uh, I've been cleared and released from Cleveland Clinic to head to Indianapolis, which I'll do tomorrow. So it all worked out well. I have a giant scar on my chest that has to be over 14 inches, and it stings. But I've been off the narcotics since day three. I've been here since last Tuesday, so I'm ready to be home. Thank everyone for their prayers. This was not fun in any way, but it's behind me now. Uh, he's going to work half-time next week, and in five more weeks, my chest bone will be healed. Ah, that sounds painful. Uh, that seems really fast, he said. Okay, and he may be back in October. We'll uh, just send him emails and annoy him to come to Florida sooner. How's that? That way he can have a breakdown here. Uh, we've got um, uh, Tom is marrying, doing the officiating, not marrying, his daughter. Um, uh, okay, be, wait, that didn't sound right. Yes, either. right. That's why I said officiating. Um, hoping to plant some seeds and to bring her back uh, closer to the Lord. So we want to pray for uh, that while he's there officiating the wedding, doing the marriage, that um, uh, we uh, uh, he can plant the seeds and get her and her new husband uh, back in with the Lord. Um also, he's planning on playing, listen to this, he wants to play for a group that he attends, the Genesis Sermons. He said, if we begin this month, we should be done in March 2025. So they're committing to do this. And that's that's a long time. That's a lot of sermons. So hats off to them, and we'll see how that works out. Um, so he wants prayer about that. And then Becky is still not feeling well from Sunday, so keep Becky in prayer. And then I got an email I can't give their names, but the people in Pakistan, you can see their photo in the back kitchen, but um, uh, they um, he sent me an email. And Now listen, these people just came to the Lord, just. And they're in a place where talking about the Bible and talking about Christianity could cost them their lives. And here, listen to this. My wife and I feel great happiness to share with you the news about one of our neighbors. A lady came to our home while we were both reading from the Bible. And praying to God, and when she was uh, uh, when she was uh, saw the Bible, she asked, "What is this?" We had a great opportunity to tell her we are reading from the Bible, which is the Word of God. Now imagine them doing this. Hmm. Just met the Lord, and they're already willing to share. She was surprised and began to talk more about it. She said, "If this is God's Word, then what about other religious books? When you read only the Bible, we had a wonderful time to answer her and shared that this is the only Word of God, which has." all the things mentioned from beginning to end. Most of all, it has written God's love through Jesus Christ. We then had a nice time of taking tea together and spent some more time discussing things together. She understands God's word and we found she would uh, more, I guess she would want more time to know God. Uh, she's a Hindu and follows Hindu gods. 
We had a nice time sharing about our faith with her. Please pray for her that she would know true loving God and his plan of salvation through Jesus. I can't give her name. Uh, she lives, I won't even say that. We're thankful that God is helping us to learn from the Bible and growing in our faith. We have a question to understand. Please explain why God allows sickness to people. And can Satan bring sickness? Questions, but uh, we want to pray for them. I won't give their name, but the Lord knows who they are. And we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have heard the prayer requests for today, and uh, you know everything that's going on. Steve with his heart, and Becky, and Tom, and uh, these people in Pakistan that are already willing to share their newfound faith and to uh, uh, pray for others that they will come to this knowledge as well. How tender that is. Lord, we're very thankful to hear this good news. And uh, we just ask that you give them the ability to talk uh, faithfully about you, to talk rightly, and to uh, uh, be willing to continue to share this. And we would ask that you would put a hedge of protection around them in their endeavors so that the word can go forth from them without any, uh, any difficulties and any uh, trials in their life. But Lord, we are thankful for all that you've done for us. We're thankful for this class. We pray that uh, you will bless the time here together and uh, we're just uh, anticipating good things from your word tonight. And we would pray that it would be proper and that nothing would be uh, wrong doctrine-wise. And if it is, that you would alert us to that. Lord, we just uh, commit this uh, time together. Wonderful, wonderful. You know, um, okay, here's something to convict everybody here. These people just met the Lord, and they literally have been known the Lord and had a Bible for probably 30 days. That's it. And they're telling people about Jesus, and they're praying for other people. So just to convict you, have you told anybody about Jesus in the past 30 days? Or have you prayed for others that uh, they would come to saving knowledge of Jesus in the past 30 days? If not, do it today, okay? Um, let's right. see here. One thing I do have to say, when I first came to Christ, I was just like telling any, oh, any and everybody. You just want everybody but, to know. But it was like everyone I talked to, friend or foe, was like, just shut up. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Yeah. Like, you're going like, oh. So that was enough to have me be quiet for a long time. Nobody threatened to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, nobody, nobody yeah, threatened so. to kill you, and yet there you were, you know, or there they are. They so. are doing it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So. Unbelievable. Okay, so we have August 4th today, I think. I think. Let's see here. That's all day. Okay, all day, he says. So I just got to find the right to August 3, August 4. We'll see what happened this day in Christian history. And imagine walking 900 miles. Ezra apparently was the commissioner for Jewish affairs under Artaxerxes I, king of the Persian Empire. In 458 BC, the king sent Ezra to Judah to investigate the situation there. The first return from the Babylonian captivity had occurred 79 years earlier under Sheshbazar when work to rebuild the altar and temple began. The temple was finally completed in 516 BC. Ezra was sent to enforce the Jewish laws and had opportunity to appoint magistrates and judges in Israel. As many as 5,000 Jewish exiles from the Babylonian captivity accompanied Ezra and they brought with them valuable gifts for the temple in Jerusalem from King Artaxerxes and from the Jewish exiles who remained in Babylon. Ezra, however, was much more than a Persian government official. He was both a priest and a scribe. 
As a priest, he could trace his lineage back to Aaron. He was also a scribe, one who studied and interpreted the scriptures. He was a teacher of the Jews of Babylon and was coming now to teach the Jews of Judah. Ezra and his fellow travelers left their homes in Babylon on April 8, 455, I'm sorry, 458 BC, and assembled along the Ahava Canal off the Euphrates. On April 19th, they broke camp and started off for Jerusalem. The caravan arrived in Jerusalem four months later on August 4th, 458 BC. Now, obviously, I want you to know so you don't write this down as recorded history because there's no way that they can tell those dates. Okay, this is just them making an assumption on these dates, all right, just so you know that. Um, the years are fine. Usually, I haven't checked this to see if the years are actually the ones that match history, but the dates, they cannot know these dates. Okay, so the distance from where the Jews lived in Babylon along the Euphrates River to Jerusalem was approximately 500 miles if one traveled in a straight line. However, because it was desert all the way, the route traders took from Babylon and Persia went northwest along the Euphrates and then southwest to Jerusalem, making it a 900-mile trip. The terrain surrounding the Euphrates was very lush, especially in the spring when Ezra and the exiles traveled. <clears throat> they were traversing what we would call the Fertile Crescent. Resting on each Sabbath, they averaged about 10 miles a day. Since their entourage included both young children and the elderly, this was a realistic pace everyone could maintain. Such a trip was by nature dangerous, but God protected them from enemies and bandits along the way. In describing God's protection, Ezra explains that the gracious hand of our God protected us. This is the same hand of our Heavenly Father from which none of his people can be snatched. God put his gracious hand on Ezra because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach it to the people of Israel. God's hand was upon Ezra because he put study, conduct, and teaching in their proper order. He taught what he had first lived, and what he lived was based on his study of the scriptures. God keeps his hand on such a person. And they ask, do you want God's gracious hand to protect and direct you? God is looking for new Ezra's. He may not ask you to teach a nation as he did Ezra, but we can all teach those in our sphere of influence. The first step is to study God's word so that we understand it and hear him speaking to us through it. The second step is to apply to our lives what God has revealed. Once we have lived out God's truth in our lives, we can share them with others and God's hand will be upon us. And 2 Timothy 2.15, be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correct, correctly explains the word of truth. So, good stuff there. Like I said, there's, you know, this is just a commentary devotional type of thing. And so they're, they're making things up as they go quite often. So, um, as long as you realize that they get the basic facts correct from the Bible, and then they kind of add in a little bit, you know, to make it something that people can read. But um, just want to make sure you know that. Um, we're in the book of Colossians still. I thought we might finish it last week, but that did not happen. And so we're going to continue on in Colossians chapter 1. And because uh, we didn't finish, but we got to a verse that we decided to not take. It was a little long. Yes, that's correct. We're uh, in 1.16. And Jim can start wherever he wants. Probably 15. 15, for sure. The supremacy of Christ is the, uh, the topic throughout the next bit. Okay. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Um, things in heaven and on earth, either visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Okay, once again, I'll read it. It's very close, but they just, you know, kind of use different words for the same thing. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, and all things were created through him and for him. All right, so very close. They just, you know, changed Sorry, one word. Bye. Yeah, just some small things like that. There's Mrs. Garrett. How are you, Mrs. Garrett? Very good to see you. Very good. To, and you're not soaking wet. She waited until the rain stopped, which is very wise of you. Okay, the word for here. For is given as an explanation of the previous verse. There it said, he is the image of the invisible God. In order to explain what that means, these words are now given. It is not that Jesus Christ is merely a knock-off copy of God, but that he is God, wholly and completely. This is now substantiated by the words, for by him all things were created. Okay, we talked about this a few weeks ago. This is the verse that I mentioned. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, for by him all other things are created. They inserted the word other. And as I say, the old New World Translation, which I have a copy of back there, has the word other bracketed, showing that it's not in the Greek. And then the new New World Translation took off the brackets. They just left it in clear text and said, for by him all other things are created. Okay, now, because the old ones had the brackets, I suppose it's not changing the word of God that they got rid of the brackets in the new. Obviously, I'm kidding there. It's just, it's one little thing, one little thing, and pretty soon the word of God is now completely different. Okay, and uh, they seem to find that acceptable at the Jehovah's Witnesses. It is not. Okay, you cannot change scripture. You cannot add to it or take from it and come out unharmed. And uh, they will find that out someday. But uh, that goes back to, does anybody remember, we were talking about the first principles. And it was one of the first principles that I was reading, and I gave you the name of it. Do you remember the name of the particular first principle that absolutely dispels that. It is the principle of contingency. If Jesus is created, then he would be a contingent being. God is a necessary being. He cannot not exist. He must exist. Anything that is not God is contingent. It is contingent on him for its existence. In other words, it can not exist. I can not exist. If God didn't want to create me, I wouldn't be here, okay? So God cannot not exist. I can not exist. If Jesus is a contingent being, then he could not exist, okay? He does exist, and he always has existed. That is stated very explicitly throughout John's writings in particular, but elsewhere in the Old Testament and New as well, okay? If he was created, he would be contingent. If he was contingent, no contingent being can create another contingent being. I cannot create anything, not a, a grain of sand. I can't create a new world. I can't create anything. All I can do is take what God has given us and I can put things together, okay? I think of it as little building blocks that he's allowed us to tinker with. That's it. 
That's all we can do. We cannot create, and if we created something, we would need to sustain it. We would have to be a sustaining force. All of these things point to God. It is impossible for that to happen, and therefore adding in the word other is criminal. It is literally criminal against the word of God. Okay. Now, them putting it in there in brackets was wrong to start with because they hadn't done their uh, logic and they hadn't understood that that should not be in there. But their theology drives their translation, saying, well, he's not God, and so we have to put in the word other and bracket it. And then eventually they say, well, everybody now knows he's not God, so we're just going to drop out these brackets, and of course, now it's okay. Uh, that's the logic, obviously, behind their thinking. But the principle of contingency. I don't think we finished the the uh, 12 first principles, did we? We got through lake no, number five. No, we got five so and, far. But yeah. Uh, I wanted to get to, what's that? And I was we supposed to send them. Oh, we got six of them. She wrote them down. And I did send you those, didn't I? Yes. Okay, good. And a couple other people asked for them and I did send them on. So um, uh, maybe if we have time, we can go ahead and do the rest of the uh, 12 first principles because it's a logical way. Or I'll tell you what, rather than us doing it here, just go watch Genesis 1-1 sermon from the Superior Word. And I, that's what I just based the Genesis 1-1 sermon on how you can know what is right about God. And then when you know what's right about God, you can take all of the things that are wrong about God and say, this is impossible and therefore I'm not a Hindu. What? No, no, no. You said that wrong. What did All I the say? All things that people say are wrong about Ro God. Say wrong about God. Yeah, you didn't say that. That's not what you said. What did I say? All the things that are wrong about God. About God. Yeah. All the things that are wrong about God. The God that is not. Okay? Okay. I'm not talking about the God. I'm talking about people's idea about God. All the yeah, things yeah, that are wrong about God in their thinking. Not not wrong about the person of God, but they're thinking about God. Yeah, yes. Go. Okay. So, That's all good. of those things you can take and you can put them off to the side. Okay? They are wrong and therefore... See, I'm even using what I was saying with my hands. So you weren't watching my hands. You were, you were not paying attention to my hands. All the things that are wrong about God, the things that you believe, you put over here. Okay, there. See, I covered that very well. Yeah. Anyway. anyway, I knew what I was saying. You guys just didn't. Okay, anyway, so go watch the Genesis 1-1 sermon, and you will be able to identify what is correct in the nature of God. And then from there, what you can do is you can say, does any source on planet Earth match what you can know simply by thinking it through. Is there a source? And I can tell you, it's not Buddhism. And I can tell you, it's not Islam. And it's not Hinduism. Those you can take and you can just toss them right out on their ear. We know, we can know without ever having a piece of paper from God, supposedly, if that is right or not. We can know that. And then we can say, is there something on this planet that says God has revealed himself to me? Is there anything anywhere? And you can say, yeah, the tree tells me that God has revealed himself. That's general revelation. But I want more. I want more. Where can I find it? And you start looking at all the texts in the world. And what do you do? You come up and you see something and it says, the Holy Bible. And you open it and you start reading it. And you say, this is exactly what logic tells me is possible. You can do that before having the Bible. So that when you get the Bible, you can say, this actually matches. And not only that, after I see that it matches the nature of God, you can say it confirms itself because it tells what's going to happen in the future and then it happens. So this is the thing about the Bible that is unlike any other text on the planet is it accurately reveals the nature of God. It accurately reveals the problem with sin. Why is there sickness that they asked about there in Pakistan? Why is there sickness in the world? 
Is the devil allowed to afflict us? Well, I answered, that's in Job chapter, chapter one. Yes, he is, but he cannot do it without the authority of God. Everything, everything ultimately comes under the sovereignty of God. If he allows us to choose him, that still falls under the sovereignty of God. I'm going to allow them to choose to follow me or not, okay? All of those things come under his sovereignty. So we can know 100% what God is like, but we cannot know him without this book. All we can know is what he is like. And then this book tells us who he is and the nature of him in a way that goes far, far beyond what we can logically think through. But knowing logic and being able to throw out what is wrong will help us to think about what is right. I had somebody emailing me this past week about the nature of God. And uh, I won't talk about it right now, but uh, I will eventually, but it's the nature of God, Jesus in relation to the Godhead. And this person is entirely wrong. What they are thinking is heretical, okay? And unfortunately that's so because they have not thought through the logic of the Godhead, okay? And that's an entire study all by itself. It's not just the logic of who God is, but the logic of the Godhead, okay? And we've talked about that many times, that there's, uh, it, you can use the simple example of time. We, I do this from time, this all bears on what we're talking about right here. So time has three things, and those three things are not the same, and yet they all are comprised of time, future, present, and past. The past is not the future. The present is not the past. And the past isn't the present. And the past, I said the future already, the future is not the present or the past. Each one is an individual thing, and yet it's a part of a whole. Now, the future has always been there. And so what is past used to be future, right? And the present has always been there. And what is present right now used to be past or used to be future, excuse me, and it will be past someday. Those things are understood by us. If we can understand that, then we can understand the nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because each one is explained differently in the Bible. And people take verses and they say, oh, see, this proves it doesn't prove anything. You're reading it wrong. You are logically deducing something incorrect. So uh, all of this is important. Logic is a very important part of our understanding of God because God is the author of logic. logic. That's right. Nothing illogical stems from God. If something is taught that is illogical or incorrect, it is not from God. Okay? That's all there is to it. It is an uh, error in the understanding of who God is and what he has done. Okay, so we're going to go here again. This is now substantiated by the words, for by him all things were created. Principle of contingency tells us that it must be that God is created and yet it is being ascribed to Jesus Christ and therefore Jesus Christ by default is God, okay? This takes us right back to Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that verse, the term the heavens and the earth are meant to be taken as an all-encompassing statement. Elohim created all things. When it says the heavens and the earth, at times in the Bible, the heavens are simply the sky, what's flying around where the birds are. At times in the Bible, the heavens are more than that. It includes the stars. And at times in the Bible, the heavens include 
something that we can't even see. There's an a aspect of creation that we cannot even see, but it is there. Paul speaks about it. He was allowed a revelation of that at one time. Okay, so you got to be careful with interpreting the word heavens. And yes, it is plural. I, uh, you know, King James only has loved to uh, argue their version of the Bible is the only perfect word of the Bible, and yet the first sentence of the King James Bible is wrong. They say the heaven and the earth. Sorry, it's wrong, okay? And from there, they use the exact same term in Genesis 1, a couple more times it said, and they'll translate it with an S or without an S. They're just wrong, okay? So if you want to know if the King James Version is the only inspired version of the Bible, just read Genesis 1, 1 in the Hebrew. She's laughing because they speak Hebrew. Anyway, there you go. That's my little poke of the day on the King James Version. There may be another one. I'm not going to say there won't be. Okay. Elohim, Elohim is the creator. Now, Elohim means, I don't want you to think that the word Elohim, it's translated as God in our Bible, but it does not specifically mean God. Because an Elohim can be things other than God. Jesus said, are you not gods? And he is uh, citing the Psalms, and in the Psalms it's speaking about human beings, right? Uh, When you think of the word Elohim, I want you to think of this thought over there. If you will think of over there, it's we're in one area, they are in another. The Elohim that Jesus was referring to in the Bible are human beings, and they are people that are over there. We are in this category, they're in that category, okay? When Samuel was brought up by the witch of Endor, what is he called? Elohim, okay? He's not a god. He is over there. So think of the word Elohim as just something that is occurring elsewhere, either in Space with you, it's a different category of a person. He's a judge, and I am a not, not a judge. And Elohim can be a spirit coming out of the earth, or it can be God, or it can be God's plural, okay? And when I say God's plural, I'm not talking about real gods. I'm talking about the false gods of the nations, okay? So the word Elohim, you have to be careful with. Um, El is God. O is kind of like a fullness, okay? The I am at the end is plural, but it is not plural when you're speaking about the true God, okay? But there's a fullness in the true God, okay? There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we won't get into that right now, but just think of the word Elohim when you're reading it as over there. God is not in our sphere, okay? He's over there, all right? And so be careful with the word Elohim. There are some people out there that get lots of views and they have big titles, okay, doctor or this, and and they do a lot of big view videos and their theology is terrible on the nature of God, gods, etc. I'm not going to say their names. There's a couple of them, one of them very famous, but if you want to get yourself off on really bad tangents, watch that stuff, okay? It's sensational, like I said, millions and millions of views and it's wrong 90% of the time. It is not responsible theology, so be very careful with that. But Elohim is the creator. Jesus is the creator, right here. Not hard to figure out what Paul is telling us, okay? Further, the word all things in Greek, tapanta, given a collective sense, the all, okay? The all, everything. This then signifies the entire universe, which includes all things from the atoms to the galaxies. All things were created by him. Without the article in the Greek, it would mean all things individually, but the article shows that it is all things 
collectively. Ta Panta, the all, okay? He created and all things came to be. He spoke, God spoke, he is the word of God and out came the creation. And to, to this day, he sustains all things. I don't want to get ahead of us because that's in another verse coming in just a minute. But he spoke everything into existence. He is the creator. And like I said, and I don't want to get into it too deeply, but because we are created, if he stopped sustaining us, we would do what? Die. We, just, we just, yeah, we would just stop existing. The universe would suddenly cease to exist because he must sustain. There must be a sustainer of all things, okay? And the Bible speaks of that in two places. One of them is in Colossians 1. The other is in Hebrews. That's correct, Hebrews 1. Okay, what's that? Oh, it, it, Hebrews. It, it, let me take you there right now. We'll see it in a second because we're going to get to that verse. And it just an, we'll probably get to it today. But Hebrews one, I think it's Hebrews one three. Um, I don't. It is. Yeah, he's saying yes. He, it took him a second. His pistons were firing, and then they he belted it out, and I knew he'd get it. Um, so um, Hebrews one, and yeah, right here it says, "Has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world." So there's the creation who being the brightness, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Okay, so he's not only the creator, but he is the sustainer. If you're the creator, you must be the sustainer. That means is you are contingent on something. Uh, it, you know, if uh, you going out to dinner is contingent on me paying you for the week's work, then that's a contingent, okay? A contingent being is dependent on something else happening and causing it to happen, okay? So, a contingent being cannot create anything. Doodly squat. And yet, man has done everything possible to deny the deity of Jesus Christ in order to separate him from what is said about him, okay? Now, having said that, that automatically, immediately, if we know that a contingent being, and if you think it through, you will understand that. If you know that that is true, then you can immediately throw out the Jehovah's Witnesses. And you can also throw out the Mormons. Gone. You don't need to go any further with them. That's what logic does. It gets rid of error. If there is error, you can say that is not correct. It doesn't tell you what's right, okay, until you get to the final point. But it will get rid of error along the way. So you say, I don't need to deal with that anymore. I can take Hinduism, I can just put it over there because I know it's not right. I can take Buddhism and I can put it over there and say, you know what, that's great. The guy was, he wrote some cool things. Wow, that was really impressive. It's wrong. Put it over there. Okay, and you can do that with all of these things and then you can come up to what is right. And then you have to determine, is there the right after? And I talked about that. You pick up the Bible and say, oh, this is it. Okay, so a contingent being cannot create anything, and I read that. They have even added words, oh yeah, right into this verse in order to change the meaning of it, in order to obscure what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. And I say, see below, so maybe I'm going to put it down there, but we'll get to that later. The words were created are in the aorist tense. This then denotes a specific, definite event which occurred in history. An aorist tense, all it is, is it's something that is done, but it's not in any regard to time. So it could be, uh, aorist just means that it happened at a particular point in time without any references to when it happened. 
Okay, so it's an uh, it was uh, it was uh, denotes a specific definite event which occurred in history. It wasn't that there was a creation and then a recreation. Okay, so now we can do another thing. We've gotten rid of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we've also gotten rid of the Mormons, but we can also get rid of recreation theology. I don't know if you've heard about that, but that is something that people love to, you know, they take an entire system of theology and they jam it into Genesis 1-2. I think it's in between 1-2 and 1-3. And, you know, God created, there was this world, Satan was the ruler of the world, and, you know, all this stuff. And it's an entire theology of stuff that they have thrown into the Bible to say that the world was created and then God recreated the world, okay? Why would they do that? Does anybody, I've talked about this before, why would somebody come up with the recreation, which is they've got volumes that they've written about what happened in between these two verses in Genesis 1. Why would they do that? Go back to about the 1860s. Why would they do that? Oh, because of um, uh, evolution. That's right. Evolution. Darwin. Uh, we've got this ancient, ancient world that's out there. We can't explain it. These people are smarter than we are. They're scientists, and they say that the world is this old, and it doesn't fit what we know. It's the revealed word of God. How do we get around that? And so they come up with recreation. There you go. That's, that's where that comes from is because people are not willing to stand on the word of God. Okay, now. If they'd only waited. If they only waited. Let me tell you what. If they would just watch is Genesis history and it says that, you know what, we've got this to this is 17 billion years according to the evolutionary model. And then you go out to where Mount St. Helens blew up and they have from this to this and it took 22 minutes. And they say, oops, well, that's an aberration and they just chuck it out the window okay there are aberrations all over this planet um uh polystrate fossils we've talked about that before you know what a polystrate fossil is poly means multiple straight is not bent right polystrate what is this it's a tree that was it's in. a tree that's right you've got a tree and there's billions of years worth of sediment around them and they just show up in the evolutionary model well, how can that tree be there if this is 50 billion years worth of sediment? And it's petrified. Or whatever? And it's petrified, and etc. Polystrate fossil. Okay, but that doesn't matter to them either. That's an aberration. They've got, they're, you know, and people will try to say, oh, well, polystrate fossils, and they'll find a reason why this isn't what it is, okay? And there's so much overwhelming evidence. Maybe I've said this. Maybe I haven't. But um, a, a person was talking about, I think it's on the, is this Genesis History series, one of the videos, and he said that they have rooms in uh, where they do archaeology, and they take and they bag things, and they put a term on it. And the, I, I'm not going to give you the right term. I don't remember what it is, but it's something like aberration. They just put a red tag on it. It says aberration. It doesn't fit with their model. And he says there are tens of thousands of pieces of archaeology that don't fit their model. And so they don't evaluate them based on the paradigm that they accept, which is the evolutionary model. If you were to take those, there would be no evolutionary model. And it's called the theory of evolution because it is a theory. 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 That's right. Anyway, I, you know what? I'm not ashamed to stand on the word of God. I really don't care if people think I'm insane that I believe the world is a young earth. It doesn't make any difference.
difference to me. The only thing that matters to me is that I'm going to stand before the Lord. And if he says, you know what, you were wrong about that, Charlie, I'm going to say, at least I erred on the side of your word. Okay. I misunderstood your word. But the way the word is written, I can come to no other conclusion. I'm sorry about that. That's just the way it is. It says day one, day two, day three. And you know what? Then people say, well, you know, day means a lot of different things in the Bible. Yom can mean the Yom of the Lord, right? That's an indeterminate amount of time. It could be seven years, it could be whatever, the day of the Lord. Okay. Yeah, well, context. Well, not only is there context, but what else is there in? There is in? day, there is night. There is evening and morning. Evening and morning. So. Evening and morning. I'm sorry. The day of the Lord doesn't have an evening and a morning. A 24-hour day does. Okay? All of these things are without a doubt in the Genesis story. So either it's wrong and we're just following the wrong God and wasting our time. Boy, so wouldn't that be a waste those of time? Striations, huh? Yeah. Okay. In that thing, there's wavy. Yeah, wavy. And they go like, well, it got really hot, and that. And now, it yeah, no. Once you have something solid. But the solid, limestone underneath it is still limestone. It that's hasn't right. Been turned to marble. That's right. Sorry, <laughs> it doesn't work science. that way. Science. Hello. Yeah. Like, no. No. I'm sorry. There's way too much evidence to me. To, I, and I don't care anyway. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Even if we didn't have that stuff, I still have the Word of God, and I've got to put myself in front of the Lord every day, and I have to say, Lord, this is your word. I'm going to believe it, and that's what I do. So if people think I'm crazy, that's fine. I, I am crazy about Jesus, so I am crazy. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, anything created by him is contingent. I've done that. Okay, the words were created uh, were created or in the aorist tense. It was a specific de definite event which occurred in history. It wasn't that there was a creation and then a recreation. Sorry, guys, that doesn't work. Nor were there things created and then other things later created. There was one act of creation. One. Everything in this universe was spoken into existence at once. Okay? Uh, you know, as far as the, he stretched out the heavens, he took the creation and he did what he did with it. But everything was created at once, okay? Rather, all things were created and they remain as the creation to this day. What is created is created, okay? That's it. You're not adding anything to it. You're not taking anything away from it. When you burn this piece of wood, it doesn't become nothing. It just changes its form into something else. Everything in creation exists from the moment of creation okay now if you think about it we go outside we just had a great thunderstorm a few minutes ago okay and there's all this power and there's this rain coming down you think oh my gosh this is so magnificent you know how could god have done this i i think that don't you you look at it and you think that this earth is so small that if you were to put it up against the sun it wouldn't hardly even register and if you put the sun up against a red giant star there would be it, it would be like a flea on the back of a brontosaurus and even then it wouldn't be big enough it would be everything in this universe god put together he spoke it into existence at one time and we look at a thunderstorm and we say look at the majesty of god and it's nothing on the cosmic scale literally nothing that's it, Burke, he said one time to me, he was reading a commentary from somebody, and he said, uh, you look at the Genesis account, and it says he created the sun and the moon and the stars, and then three words, and the stars also. It was like, it's just, he just, you know, yeah, the focus, the <laughs> focus is on Earth. 
those stars out there are so much bigger than this planet that we don't even compare in the material created order. And yet, he's focused on this Earth. Everything is from this point out. And that does not mean flat Earthers, that uh, geocentric Earth means that the Earth is the center of the universe. It doesn't mean that at all. It means it is the center of God's attention in the universe. And there's a light year of difference or 10 billion light years difference between the two, okay? We don't live on a flat earth, I'm sorry, okay? So, all things were created and they remain as the creation to this day. Going on, and as if what Paul said in his opening words was not enough, he continues with that are in heaven and that are on the earth. Again, this is an all-encompassing statement concerning the totality of creation. Paul's words take us right back to Genesis 1-1 again, showing us that everything created by Elohim was created by Jesus. Elohim is God. Jesus is God. Not hard to figure this out What and what Paul is telling us. He is telling us without any doubt, no ambiguity at all, that Jesus Christ is God. He's not in any way telling us anything other than that fact. We may not be able to fully understand that, but that's what he's telling us. But to ensure that even the dull of mind can figure this out, he adds in the words visible and invisible. We are to understand that all things in heaven and that are on earth also includes those things which cannot be seen, such as spirits. And angels are ministering spirits. We can't see them, okay? Everything which is in the material world and everything which is in the spiritual world is included in Jesus' creative efforts. No angel exists apart from his work of creation. Okay, so much for Jesus being an angel. Other than the fact that the word malach in Hebrew and agalos in Greek simply means, anybody? Messenger. Messenger. That's all it means. So when you see the word Malak, okay, and here's a good example of this. We're going to see this in the uh, Joshua sermons coming up, or we saw it in uh, Joshua 2 when he sent the uh, spies to go out. Later in Joshua, those same spies are going to be called Malakim, messengers. They're not angels. They were real human beings, okay? When Jacob sent his uh, messengers to meet Esau so that he wouldn't get wiped out when he met his brother, they're called Malakim. They're messengers, okay? And the same thing is true in the New Testament. The word agalos means messengers. And so it can mean angels, meaning spirit beings, but it can also mean people. And one of the examples is, and I don't know why people can't get this, is that it says that the law was received through angels. Through angels, okay? And so people say, oh, well, there was a step between the Lord and Moses and Aaron. That's not what that's saying at all. Okay, because if you read the Genesis, I'm sorry, the Exodus account, it is the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron. They are the messengers. It was received through messengers. They became the conduit by which the people of Israel received the law. It wasn't received by angels that came down and said, okay, God just told me this and I'm conveying it to you. That's not what happened. It was received by messengers. That's all that word means. If you can get the word angel out of your head in the right context, it takes care of a lot of the goofy stuff that people have taught about angels. Angeology is something, it's its its own separate category of theology. There's all kinds of categories. Soteriology, what is that? 
soteriology. That's the study of sin, okay? And then you've got, um, uh, what is it? Uh, I can't even think of the word right now, but one of them is angeology, okay? That's the study of angels and uh, going on. There's seven or eight categories, and I should remember them right off the top of my head. And I, I got, you know when you convince yourself you're about to say something and then you can't say it? That's me. Okay, anyway, there, there are several, uh, seven major categories, I would say. There's lots of categories, but I would say there are about seven to ten major categories. And um, uh, if you study each one of those, you want to be careful because there are people that will give bad information, and so then all of a sudden you kind of get off on these tangents, like those guys I was talking about with the word Elohim. They add in angelology into their bad theology because it's very sensational and it will make you a lot of money if you like YouTube money. One of the things about us here is that the YouTube channel is not monetized. And so there is no agenda here. Everything that we have, if somebody says, I want your sermon so that I can use them to preach my own sermons, you know what I do? I send them the whole file. You want all of the gen and I also have them on the Superior Word website. And if anybody wants to download them, everything that we've ever typed here, everything, is downloadable. It's on a PDF, the entire book of Numbers, the entire book of Hebrews. Download it and use it. I don't care. I, I, that's not my thing there. I've got my own part-time jobs. My wife works, and people are good enough to help out the uh, Superior Word Church. And so we don't ask, and if the Lord wants us to continue, it will continue. But if you want that information, it's right there on, on YouTube or on the Superior Word website. Take it. Okay. There is an agenda, but it's not mine. Well, the agenda is Jesus. That's the agenda. I want to tell you about an agenda while we're talking about the uh, the um, uh, things that we're talking about here. We were just as, oh, I'm up top here. I don't want to lose my place. If you want to hear it about an agenda, I had somebody call me today and said, I need to go talk to somebody in the hospital. I've never been there. And so um, what do I do? And so I said, well, you can go in here, you can park here, you go, you walk down here and you come to this place and people with green shirts and they'll tell you where the room is. And I, I told them all the things I said, but if it'll help you, I will go with you and then you can talk to this person. Okay. And so I went with two wonderful people and what did they do? They went in there and they witnessed to this person about Jesus Christ. Okay. They'd never met this person before. They just knew this person through another person. And so they went in and they asked, can we pray with you? Oh, I love that. And the person went from very straight and almost angry when we got there to completely open and receptive by the time we left, okay? And I will give you a hint that those people are sitting somewhere in the front row. I won't say who. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so we'll go on. This is further defined by the term, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Within both the spiritual and earthly realms, there are levels of authority which govern the affairs of sentient beings. Sentient means that you're thinking, you're cognitive, you're rational. Well, maybe not rational because we do have Democrats that are sentient, okay? But uh, they, uh, it's, it's a being that, you know, sentient, if you were to fly into a planet and you were to say, okay, what being here is sentient, which one isn't? Well, there may be animals running around, okay? That doesn't mean they're sentient beings. Those are just beings that live on the planet. But if they can start forming concepts and explaining themselves or shooting laser beams at you, that's a sentient being, okay? So there is a difference between a sentient being is something that has a sense of what is going on, a sense of reality, and is able to contemplate that, okay? So 
There are levels of authority which govern the affairs of sentient beings. That is found in Ephesians chapter 6. Okay? And these were well created, these were all created by Christ Jesus. And none, even to this day, they started to exist when he created them. None exists right now apart from his authority in creation. That goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the class. God is sovereign over almost everything. No, he's sovereign over everything. Every single thing. And if we are worried about our physical sickness, if we're worried about dying and all of these things, we don't need to worry about those things. God has said in his word, he has covenanted with us. You're going to see this in this week's sermon, and you'll see it in two weeks from now. God has covenanted with us, and because he has covenanted with us, we don't need to worry about what happens in this life. This is a blip on the road to eternity, okay? So, uh, nothing exists apart from his creation. All things, all levels of authority, everything, everything is subject to Christ Jesus, as a qualifier to this statement, though, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right, so I'm not going to get into a great talk about this, but it's something that we should say. If you want to know the answer to what he is saying, you can go back and watch that particular 1 Corinthians um, uh, video in the Superior Word uh, you know, playlists, or you can just go online, 1 Corinthians Bible uh, commentary, and it's right there. 1 Corinthians 15, then I'm going to take you to verse 27. It says here, um, 15, 27. If anyone, oh no, I'm in 1 Corinthians 13. It always helps to be in chapter 15. Okay, uh, 15, 20, 20. Okay, I'll start with 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. That God, here it is, maybe all is God. Father, and he is not God the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he will be subjected to the Godhead. Everybody got that? That is what that's saying. But go read the commentary. It may be worth your time to refer, oh, there it is, to that commentary on those verses to understand what is being relayed there. Jesus Christ is not above the Godhead, but he is a member of it. To finish up this verse, Paul gives the thought, all things were created through him and for him. He puts the word ta panta, or all things, in order, uh, he repeats it, I'm sorry, he repeats the words ta panta, or all things, in order to recapitulate what he has just said. They are to be taken collectively once again. All things collectively were created through him and for him. However, Paul changes the tense of the words were created from the aorist to the perfect tense. In so doing, it more literally reads, all things have been created through him and for him. Nothing is left undone, and his creative efforts are all-inclusive. Everything. Everything. It's all about Jesus and what he has done and is doing. The scholar Lightfoot says the latter describes the definite historical act of creation, the former, the continuous and present relations of creation 
to the Creator, which more goes into the sustaining capabilities of God, but we'll get into that soon. Paul's words of this verse are so clear, so meticulously presented, and so obvious as to what they are relaying that even a dolt, no, a subdolt, can figure out what he is saying. Anybody, if they just simply think it through, can figure out what he is saying. Paul is not merely implying that Jesus is God, rather his words make the claim explicit. But this does not fit with the theology of heretics, and so they must actually change the word of God in order to deny what Paul is saying. And to, here it is. I said that it was on that Bible. I'm just going to give it to you right now. And so to understand the depths of hatred, and this is what this is. This is not just bad theology. This is a hatred towards God that some are willing to go to in order to deny that Jesus Christ and his rightful position within the Godhead. This verse is translated by the aberrant cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, as, and I'll read it, what it says, word for word, Be, because by means of him, all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. That shows a hatred for the son and therefore it shows a hatred for God. That's what that does because it is heresy. The word other is inserted twice by them in an attempt to obscure the truth of who Jesus Christ is without any scriptural support at all. It can't even be inferred in there. And when they infer something in a Bible translation, what do they do? They italicize it or some bracket it. And they say, we believe that this belongs in here and the inference should support that. You can't even infer this. It can't even be inferred from anywhere in the Bible. It cannot be inferred, and yet they have inserted those words. And therefore, what they are doing is anathema. Paul says it in one Galatians 1, 6 through 8. That's all there is to it. It is another gospel that is not the Jesus of the Bible. And Paul brings a curse down on them for what they have done. Okay? All other things have been created? I don't think so. The word is inserted twice by them in an attempt to obscure the truth of who Jesus Christ is. I read that. They have changed God's word, thus bringing upon themselves eternal condemnation for their deceit. This is not an argument concerning a variation in a Greek manuscript, but rather a purposeful act intended to deceive the world about the truth of God in Jesus Christ. Do not allow yourself to be sucked into their web of deceit, but stand on the truth of Scripture, which teaches that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man and none other. Life application. Stand on the truth of the Word of God. We were talking about that with creation. You know, if you believe in a long-term creation, that's fine. That is you who has to stand before the Lord and justify why you believe that, okay? All I can do is go by what this book says. And when I originally started reading the Bible, it was the hardest thing for me to get through was the evolution. That was the hardest thing. Why? Because I went to Riverview High School, right? They, they, that's all they talk about. You know, I remember I was sitting, I think it was in sixth grade, Mr. Brookbank, I think is who it was. Anyway, it was maybe in sixth grade, and the guy said, well, yeah, the universe is going to end someday. The sun is going to go dark, and that'll be the end. And I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. What's the point? That's exactly what I thought. What's the point? If it's going to end, then what does it matter? 
And that's why we got people doing all the things to their bodies in the world that they're doing today, because there's no point. You might as well just live, live and do whatever feels good. Enjoy it, because there's no point to your existence. Mm -hmm. There's ultimately no point. If you think it through, if the world is gonna end 15 billion years ago or if it's gonna end tomorrow, it doesn't make any difference. There's just nothing. It's just vanity, okay? That's your problem that you need to solve with the Lord. And I went through that. I went through that same thing. You know, Lord, your word says six days, but I just, I, I, how can that be? Because I've been listening to these people. I've been listening to what they had taught. And I was convinced because that's how I was brought up that this must be the truth, that evolution is true and that there were, you know, dinosaurs 50 billion years ago. And then I get to the book of Job, and the book of Job says that he's standing there seeing a being that has a tail as big as a cedar tree, okay? A javelin can't pierce it. He's talking about its bones like bronze, and th th this thing is magnificent, and it's huge. And Job saw it. Well, how can that be? If what I've been told is true, then that can't be. Well, you know, the people over in Scotland are insane. They've got something swimming around in a lake over there. But, you know, other than Nessie, I don't know anybody. That, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is, is this true or not? Man, the, the account is written. He even says that this beast is so big that it can stand against the rushing Jordan. Okay? It's amazing. It's amazing. What a word. Anyway, okay, life application. Stand on the word on the truth of the word of God. Jesus Christ is God, and it is to him that we are accountable for our life and our doctrine. Some would, should someone come to you with any other teaching, do not even greet them. That is in the book of uh, 2 John, is it? Lest you share in his wicked work. Let me tell I think it, it might be 3 John. Somebody asked me this just a week ago, and I'm like, here it is, and now I can't remember because I'm having a Bible class, and you never remember anything when you're having a Bible class, so... Uh, give me a second. Oh, I'm going in the rock. It always helps to go in the right direction, Charlie. Um, I went too far because these are really small books. Okay, John second. I think it's two. Yeah, here it is. Two John. We're going to start in uh, verse nine. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. This is what they deny. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Okay, we talked about this in the projects before. Here come the Job's witnesses. Do I say hi to him or do I not? If I do and somebody sees me waving at him, I am now affirming those people in those people's eyes. I am saying hi to these people. And I am saying to the people that may be watching me, oh, they're just friends. There is no friendship with darkness and light. And all you get out of the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come knocking is darkness. Okay? That's why, you know what, Tom and I and a couple others have been here, Tom and I, for almost 17 years, 16 and a half for him, uh, 15 and a half for me, and then the rest of us are various from 10 to 12 years. Okay? But we go down there every week, and there's one overarching reason why we never, ever, ever have missed a week in 16 and a half years. It's because it's either light or it's darkness. That's the only two options that those people have. And if they don't have the truth coming in, all they have is darkness, okay? And so we're there every single week and we will continue to do that every week as long as I physically can and the rest of us I'm sure feel the same. 
okay? So it's important. These things are important because if you are not telling people about Jesus, they're hearing about Jesus somehow. It might be on one of these movies where he's, uh, uh, you know, these gay bisexual Jesus that they're having in movies now. I mean, that's what people may think if they see this. You see these people making movies about Jesus that have no basis in reality, okay? Or they have books that tell about Jesus that are not correct, and people need to know the truth. So it's our responsibility. Okay, so um, I guess we're in verse 17 now. 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, I like hold together. It's kind of a paraphrase, but it, I like that better than consist. Okay, and I'll probably talk about that in here. If I do, you're going to hear this twice. But um, uh, there are different words you can say to identify what is going on here. In him, all things hold together. Think of it. This is the act of sustaining that I talked about earlier and that Hebrews 1.3 talks about as well. God created, but everything must be sustained. If God said, I'm not going to sustain anymore, think of Atlas Shrugged, the book. Why am I holding this? He shrugged. He just gave up. Okay. God is a lot bigger than Atlas, but the point is that if he just said, I'm done, which he wouldn't because his word says he won't ever do that, but if he did, everything would just be gone. He is holding all things together. Consist always reminds me of pudding. This is its consistency, and I don't want people to think of what he has done in that form of a sense. There is a word that John Darby uses. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? No? No, I don't. Okay. John Darby uses a word that gives the correct sense without paraphrasing it. It's the same sense as what you have, but it's the word subsist. By him, all things subsist. There is something coming from below that is holding all things together. I love that word for this particular verse. By him, all things subsist. Okay. Like, how do I survive? I need something to subside. To, to, that's right. That, that is exactly right. Whereas consist, okay, by him all things consist. Well, that doesn't really get it. And why? Because we can take hydrogen and we can take, you know, polonium and whatever. We can put it together. It is now consisting differently because we've done something with it. Okay. Ultimately, the very basic things are consisted by God. He's holding those together. But we can manipulate the creation. So consist, I don't like that word. It just, but subsist. There is something coming from below that is holding all things together. Paraphrase but you get the idea. Okay, now if I say that again, I'm sorry, but if I don't, I want to make you understand that that word to me, go look it up and think on it, and I think that's probably the best translation I've ever read of this particular verse, which is 117. Okay, again, words concerning the deity of Christ issue from Paul's pen. There are two clauses in this verse, both of which have the word he in the emphatic position. In English, we might say he and only he. He's really stressing this, okay? As he is before all things, then nothing in time is After, before, before him. him right? That's right, okay? If he is before all things, then there is nothing that is before him that is created. Everything. So he cannot be the creator of all other things. Yeah, exactly. He can't be because he is before all all things. Other okay. Things. All yes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's that's great. What, what Bible are you reading there? Okay. So um, he's before all things. Then nothing in time is before him, as only God existed before all things. Then 
Jesus is God. He is the great I am of Exodus 3.14, meaning the Lord Jehovah, who is referred to throughout the Old Testament. He is self-existent and dependent on no other thing. Thus, his claim in John 8.58 is more fully understood. Burke, if you know it, yell it out. Uh, John 8.58. That's, that's probably it. John 5, I think you're right. John 8. Um, See, I'm not good with these numbers. Burke has got every number in the world memorized. John 8, it is? Okay. Yes, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, now I talk about that in another commentary recently. I can't remember where I put that. But you, oh no, it was one of the Bible bites that Maya put out just recently. And I talked about it during the Trinity series sermons. Um, You got to be careful with, the words, uh, you know, I heard a preacher one time say that in the Greek, those words can mean only one thing and nothing else. It's ego he me. He says, and that means that he existed. Be- That's not what that means at all. Okay. Uh, uh, you got to be careful what's being said in that particular verse. Okay. The words ego in me are translated as I am. Okay. But if you turn the page, you come to the next chapter and there's a guy that was blind and uh, they say, well, are you the person he says, ego in me, I am, and he's not claiming that he's God. So the, the preacher was just making stuff up and saying, these words are, no. The context of those words is what he is claiming deity from, not the words themselves. Okay, the words in Greek do not mean that he is the self-sustaining God that came before everything else and all that. That's not what that means, okay? Ego in me simply says, I am. But when you say that before Abraham was, I am, then that means that he existed before Abraham was, okay? And then you take the rest of the context where it says verse 59, then they took up stones to throw at the blind guy because he claimed he would, no. Nobody picked up (laughs) stones to throw at the blind guy. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. Probably what Jesus said, it would have been in Hebrew or Aramaic, he would have said, A-A, right? I am. And that's the words used in Genesis 3.14. A-A, Asher, A-A, okay? And so they said, he used the word A-A before Abraham was, and therefore the whole context is, I am God. That's what the context is there, okay? People say he never said, It's implied all the way through. He may not have said it directly, but it is implied all the way through. Absolutely. And that, if he said it in Hebrew that way, then he was letting him know, I am Jehovah. I am. Okay. So I I don't want to say that dogmatically because it's in the uh, Greek here. But the context itself tells you. But the behavior, too. The oh, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. The, the behavior of them confirms what we can infer from the rest of it. Okay, so John 8, 58, that's more fully understood based on what Paul is saying now. Paul's words here also confirm the words of the previous verse as well, which said all things were created through him and for him. If he alone is before all things, then he must be the creator of all things. Only he is a necessary being. Now, that goes back to the first principles, okay? And I did not get to the necessary being once. You start at one point and you work towards the last first principle. The necessary being is a being, and I talked about it earlier, that cannot not exist. Cannot, yes, okay? He must exist. 
Okay, how do we know that? Because Jody is sitting in that chair right now. If Jody exists and she is not necessary, then there must be a necessary well, being that created some. her. Well, she's necessary for somebody's <laughs> happiness. I'll, I'll grant you that. But the point is that if, if she didn't exist, there would be no rift in the matrix, folks. There would be no problem with it, okay? She is not necessary. But because she sits there, then we know that there is a God. There must be a necessary being if there are contingent beings, okay? Go watch the Genesis 1-1 sermon if you want to see that. If you want the notes, I can send them to you, okay? Like I said, we didn't get through the necessary being part, but you can logically know all these things, okay? So, only he is a necessary being. All other things are contingent beings, dependent on him for their existence and their continuation, that would be the principle of sustaining, okay, or the, the yeah, okay. Um, as only God is a necessary being, then Jesus must be God. That's right. This is then realized in the words, and in him all things, oh, I got it right here. In him all things consist. The BLB translates this as in him all things hold together, which yours says very close. Is that the same words? Exactly. Oh, exactly the same words. Okay, Darby, here it is, translates it as all things subsist together by him. There is some underlying force that is holding all things together. Okay, I much prefer that translation than consist. The words here are restated by the author of Hebrews using the words and upholding all things by the word of his power. That's what we talked about earlier. The universe being contingent, think of Jim sitting there, Doesn't he's not necessary, he is contingent, Charlie Garrett is contingent, this table is contingent, the universe being contingent was created by him. However, it is also dependent on him at all times for its continued existence. This shows us that he is God who alone is absolutely necessary. He cannot not exist. All other things could simply not be. And if the universe just disappeared today, if God did that, we'll just suppose God would still exist. God would still be there because God is. We aren't. God is. Okay, we are is in the sense that we are here now. But God will always exist. He is a necessary being. The difference is, and this is very hard to get your mind around, if the universe went away, there would be no... Um, oh, gosh. Uh, click, 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 click. There'd be no time. Time, that's right. Because time, space, and matter are all one thing. Are so all, matter, God, they're all dependent on each other, I should say. Okay? And because God said, I'm just done with this, and I'm getting rid of everything then there would be no time. God would simply be, get your mind around that because that's the way it was before he created. And so you could say, well, God created, why did he create when he did? Why didn't he do it earlier? Well, that's not a logical argument because there was no, no earlier. There was nothing except God. There was no clock ticking. It doesn't matter. You can call him the ancient of days, but that implies time. We use terms to try to describe God but we cannot grasp God, okay? Well, Think of it. What's visible it? and invisible. You've got physics, right. which is invisible. That's what, how we describe what right. everything held together with. So, you know, that's, yeah. that's visible and invisible. If that wasn't there, nothing would hold together. Nothing would hold together, and then it would just 
be God. Okay, but there wouldn't be that time. So, like I said, it's incorrect thinking to think because you hear people say that. Well, why did God? Why didn't He do this earlier? Why didn't? He? I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. Okay, what God has done is okay, and everything that is happening is already known to Him. Everything that ever will happen, and when He says we're going to have eternal lives, that means from a point on, they will never end. That goes on for a long time. I can tell you that right now. And yet God knows every single thing that will ever occur everywhere in the universe forever right now. This is God. Okay. And we tried to put him in this teeny little box and say, okay, I got God all figured out. We have no idea. So it puts a little bit added weight to thy will be done. Yeah, thy will be done. Absolutely. The universe being contingent was created by him. However, it is also dependent upon him for all at all times for his for its continued existence. This shows us that he is God who is absolutely necessary. He cannot not exist. All other things could simply not be. Now we'll start. But God alone must exist. This is the being that Paul says is Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is proclaiming right here. As the Bible teaches that God is also Father and Holy Spirit, then we are again being instructed in the doctrine of the Trinity. Trinity. This is the inescapable result of accepting the words of Scripture when taken at face value. Now, I want to go back. I want to read you something from that um, letter. This guy figured this out within a month. I don't know if you caught what he said in his letter. Within, what, a month of being a believer and having a Bible in his hand. Okay, let me see if I can find this. Here it is. We had a wonderful time to answer her, this person that came to their house, and shared that this is the only God's word. I, I Okay, let it go. And shared that this is the only God's word which has all the things mentioned from beginning to end. He figured this out within a month of becoming Christian. And there are Christians in this world today that don't get it. They've been out there in their Bible classes for 30 and 50 years and they don't get it. And this guy said, this person had a question, a Hindu, and wanted to know, how do you know that's true? And he says, this is the only God's word which has all the things mentioned from beginning to end. You get Genesis, right now I think they're in Exodus. I, I can't remember where he told me it was, and I'm sorry about that, but he, he told me the last time he emailed, okay? In Genesis, all you get is the beginning, and he's already deduced that God is there at the end. That's a smart guy. I'm going to tell you that right now. He thought it through. He didn't just say, okay, you know, I'm going to put my eggs in a basket because I'm unhappy with the situation in the country I live in. He thought it through, and he said, I accept the premise of this word. That's amazing. I was wondering if anybody would catch that, and I just read it, so, but isn't that amazing? There are people that still don't get that. Okay, let's go on. Um, life application. One argument used by cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses is that the Bible never uses the word Trinity. Trinity. That is as stupid as a football bat. The Bible never uses the term original sin, and yet it is a doctrine which permeates scripture. The Bible never uses the term rapture, but it is a doctrine which is found in several passages. 
Just because we use terms not specifically stated in the Bible, it does not mean that those terms are not taught by Scripture or in Scripture. Don't be led astray by nutty arguments that have no basis in reality. Core doctrines can be explicitly stated or implicitly stated, but they remain core doctrines because they describe and explain what the Bible clearly teaches. And so we can know these things. we got 15 minutes and we're going to have time. So we're going to do one more verse. And go ahead, please. He is before all things in... Okay, got that one. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Okay. Uh, among the dead may give you a false sense of what's being said here. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Um, Okay, that in all things he may have the preeminence. If you have the word among, it, if you get the concept of what it's saying, it's not a problem, but that could be a problem. Problem. So he's the firstborn from the dead. What does that imply? Before we even read these words, what does that imply? If he's the firstborn from the dead, then that means... There's going to be more people who are coming, rising from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. He did arise, but the fact is that... Paul is saying right there that there is going to be a resurrection. Right, right. Uh, right back to what that guy in Pakistan wrote to us. There is a beginning and there is an end of all things. And when I he says end, I know he's not thinking of end as far as it's over, the end of what needs to happen. The, the program, the redemptive process. Okay, marvelous. Okay, 118. Paul continues on with his description of Christ. In the previous verse, he was seen in relation to the creation. He being before it and above it in all ways. He's before it in, as the creator. He is above it as the sustainer. Creation, sustaining, okay? Now he is shown in relation to the church, a body which came forth out of creation. God is doing something, isn't he? It's not just a willy-nilly thing, and which is based on what he has done in creation. So he created, but something is happening from the creation, because of what he has done in the creation. That is incredible. That is the incarnation. That is Christ coming into the world. That is going to be not in next week's sermon, but in two weeks. Tomorrow we will have a, I'm sorry, Sunday we will have a sermon on the completion of uh, Joshua 3. Great stuff. And then they're gonna go back and cross the Jordan again in the narrative, but not actually. It's only one crossing but it explains something again. And that will be in, next week will be the first half of chapter four, and then the second half of chapter four will explain what we were just talking about right here. Marvelous, marvelous things going on in Joshua. I, I, I'm, I'm so excited. You know what, and I'm gonna say something, and this is probably gonna make everybody say, oh, you say stupid things like that all the time. I have been absolutely serious about this. I don't care if the Lord takes me today. I don't care if the Lord takes me, uh, you know, in a hundred years or if I die today or whatever. That doesn't matter. But I would like, and I've said this now since Numbers 14, I would like to live through the giving of these first Joshua sermons up to about chapter 8. After that, it's, it's that important what is in these verses. I'm not kidding. She's already seen some of it. I, because she's the, the spell checker. Boy, I, it's so embarrassing. I hate to, what I should do is check it one time before I give it to her, but she gets the raw stuff from the sermons and it's really bad. 
she comes back with these things. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, neither did I. I was typing. I was thinking. I'm just getting thoughts down. Okay. But I, I can tell you that up through about Joshua chapter 8 is so marvelous. And I've been waiting for these sermons. And once they're done, you know, we'll continue on as long as the Lord has me here. But I really wanted to have these sermons done. Okay. Um, I'll finish typing chapter 8 next Monday, the Lord willing. And then after that, if I kick off, Sergio can do them. Okay. So whatever. But I, I'm so excited about these first Joshua sermons because they are the consummation of wonderful things. Okay. Um, let's go on. Um, a body which came forth out of creation, which is based on what he has done in creation. Okay. I got to hurry. Paul shows that he is the head of the body, the church. The word he, once again, is in the emphatic position, just as it was when speaking of him as being the image of God. The one who is the image of God is he who is the head of the body. There is parallelism running between the two thoughts, which will be built on by Paul. He's taking one thought and he's saying this, and he's saying, look at, look at, look at this parallelism that's going on. The people of the world are all a part of the creation, but because of the fall, and because of free will within man, not all of those in creation have acknowledged God. However, within the stream of humanity, God has called out a group who do acknowledge him. Those in this group have become members of his body. There is a term that is used of them, and it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. What is that term? The people that are the people of God. He calls them, all the way back to Genesis 6, sons of God. Always speaking of the redeemed of the Lord. I'll do a video on that someday because it's such a stickler with some people. But that is who the people of God are. They're called sons of God. Paul deals with this in the book of Ephesians. But there is the stress placed upon the unity of the body. Now he places the stress on the preeminent position of Christ. Ephesians 6 is speaking about unity of the body. This here in Colossians is dealing with the preeminence of the head of the body, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of this called out group known as the church. While speaking of him, he says, who is the beginning? As he is the one who created all things, so he is the beginning of the new thing which God has done within the creation in this body which is called out of the world okay christ is the beginning of it he is being as paul says the firstborn from the dead this is how you become a part of this body being raised from the dead okay now that sounds like we got to die first well guess what we did die to christ we are a part of the body because of the death of christ we have died to christ once again joshua 4 second sermon okay Christ is the beginning of it. This is where the parallelism finds its true anchor. It is between Christ's position in relation to creation and his position in relation to the church. He is the firstborn over all creation, as was seen in verse 15. And he is the firstborn from the dead. The two thoughts place Christ Jesus in the preeminent position in all things. However, there is a point which must be considered. Though Christ is the firstborn of both, his status in relation to the church differs from his status in relation to creation. He's giving us parallelism, but there's a difference in the status. He is the firstborn from the dead. 
having been one who was dead, just as those who come after him also die. But though he is firstborn over all creation, he is not a part of the creation except his body incidentally. It's an incidental part of creation. Does everybody understand that? God did not immediately create a body for Jesus and unite with it. He developed a body through the stream of humanity, which he then united with in the womb of Mary. Okay, so God is God, all right? He's not a part of the creation. In other words, it shows the magnitude of what Christ, the creator, was willing to do in order to identify with those he has called. He was willing to participate in the most humiliating aspect of all in order to fellowship with us. As death is the result of sin, he was willing to take our sin upon himself and die. Having no sin of his own, he naturally had to resurrect. In his resurrection, he carried our sin away through his death, leaving it in death so that we might follow him in life. That is the marvel of what God has done for us. The creator of all things, all things, did this for us. The earth may not be the center of the universe, but it is the center of God's attention in the universe. Man on this earth is that point of his reference. Because of this, he is Jesus, the first fruits from the dead, and the pattern for all who will afterwards arise from the dead. This is speaking of the resurrection, not a reanimation. Others have been reanimated to life. A couple of them in the Old Testament, Lazarus, for example, but Christ is the first of the resurrection, coming forth to eternal life. Death is conquered in him, and so will be the case for all who follow him. Thus, whether in relation to creation or in relation to the church, Christ is first, so that, as Paul says, that in all things, all things, he might have the preeminence. Wow. The words in Greek read, might become being first. As Vincent's word study states concerning this, he became head of the church through his incarnation and passion as he is head of the universe in virtue of his absolute and eternal being. In all things and in all ways, Jesus Christ is the first. He holds the position of absolute preeminence. This is the God that we serve. Life application. When we consider what God has done through Jesus Christ, we should be humbled to the very core of our being. It is impossible for us to truly imagine the value that God has placed upon humanity when we consider the lengths that he was willing to go through in order to bring us back to himself. And he has done it in such a way that glory radiates out in the face of Jesus Christ our Lord, our Savior, our God. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done in Christ. Thank you that we have reconciliation through his blood, we have eternal hope through his resurrection, and we have the surety of spending eternity figuring out the wonderful things that you have done for us. We're going to have so much delight and so much to do that we'll never get tired of it. We can't even think of that right now, Lord, because we get tired and we go to bed and we just want to sleep. But Lord, you have something for us that is so wonderful. 
Help us to do our job to tell others so that they can participate in it. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Can you imagine that we would be quiet on our ascension?